0: excited are you guys ready are you ready to talk about this
1: as as ready as i'm allowed to be for discussing any of tommy Wiseau's vampire fan fiction
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm so excited okay all right let's do this shall we welcome back to protean pirate radio where we pirates help you navigate the uncharted waters of this capitalist shithole I'm your host and democratically elected, instantly recallable captain, Mel B, and this is my first mate, Kyle. Say hi, Kyle.
2: I am, I just can say the, the room, that's, I can't say hi, I can only the room. <laughs> the room. We're talking about the room. I'm sorry, you had copy <laughs> and intro to do. Hello, the room. It's, it's the, the room.
0: It's the room. Today we are joined by the always wonderful Marxist film critic and co-host of Horror Vanguard, Ash. To talk about objectively the best film ever fucking made in the 21st <laughs> century, Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Where do we even fucking start?
2: We, f- we start by welcoming, uh, 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 really just this, this sort of a member of this sort of weird spiritual space that we've carved out on Twitter between a few of us.
0: Yes, hello, and, Ash.
2: Ashes. Uh, Ash is- Ash is and should be here, and we're happy.
0: Yes. Hello. You? <laughs> this is the perfect person to have on this episode to talk about this movie. Hot damn. How are we doing, by the way, folks? It's almost the end of the year. It's pretty, uh, pretty solid.
1: Is it? Did this year happen? When am I?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Time doesn't exist, but...
1: Oh, 2020 is tearing me apart. <laughs> Zing. Oh... Oh yeah, no one, no one has ever gone there before. That was a very original joke I just oh, did.
0: God, I Air love horns. It. You gotta me apart, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, I really. It's,
1: I'm
2: w- doing production notes. <laughs> production notes.
0: Yeah, I really uh, don't have show notes for this. I just really want us to riff on this. I do uh, think that this film. Let me put it this way: Where were you when you first saw the room?
2: That's a that's a really good intro.
0: Who who uh, wants to go first? Mel, for it?
2: Mel, you Mel, you just start. Where were okay. you, Mel? Where were you when you first saw the room?
0: <laughs> okay, so I, I had, had just, just great idea. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Kyle. <laughs> Fuck, this is gonna be a hot mess to edit. Okay, the first time that I ever saw the room was in Omaha. There was a midnight theater that was a single screen theater, the Dundee Theater. And before it started its renovations, and it looks like it does now, it hadn't been renovated in like 50 years. So it was, you know, red velvet seating with absolutely no leg room. There were red curtains on either side of, you know, this giant screen. And they used to do midnight showings of all these really great films. I think the first film I ever saw there was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And then I saw Boogie Nights, I think, with Mark Wahlberg, which was a experience. Um, and then I started, you know, my friends and I were a bunch of theater geeks and we started getting into Rocky Horror Picture Show. And one night the room was playing and my friends knew exactly what it was and uh, invited me along. And I don't think I have laughed that hard in my life. <laughs> There's something really magical about just how much dunking happens in the theater on this film. Like the whole cult ritual is just making fun of this film. And it was really, really fun. And then when I I was in college, I used to go to a midnight theater in in Denver. And I think I went a couple of months in a row because they would play the film. And you could throw spoons at this giant, cardboard cutout Tommy Wiseau's head with the mouth cut out and you would like win free popcorn or something if you like got spoons inside his mouth whenever this framed picture of the spoon comes up oh it was beautiful it was so good so yeah it's been a joyful experience from the first moment that I watched this film it's just always been sort of like an absurd part of my character so I will always have like a serious love for it what about you two Kyle like-
1: Ash I like I like that I like that kind of unintentional juxtaposition between the room and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Cause I think the room is really what if Rocky Horror Picture Show was made by a bunch of weirdos and perverts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've kind of like the room is one of those weird movies where I feel like I've always been watching it. Yeah. Like I can't, I I have no memory of the first time I saw this movie. But I have like this endless chain of memories of room references and room jokes.
0: <laughs> yes, stitched itself into like my own cultural memory too, for sure. It,
1: it feels like like this is like like the the glitch in the matrix, right? The room ne- The room was never really made. Tommy so doesn't exist. This just kind of like made itself extant in our world. It just appeared in the ether one day, and we've all kind of embraced this like chaotic memory damage that is the room. <laughs> Yeah,
2: that's well, and we can uh, get into it at some point. But it represents how the room has be beca- how the room has become the room. There's there's there are multiple rooms. It's like the collapse of the Roman Republic. Like it, it's in all actuality. There's a there's a wonderful book that everyone who's interested in the room should read called <laughs> "Roman Republics" by the <laughs> classicist Jennifer Flowers. Um, it's a fantastic book, but if you don't like classics, don't read it. That's a joke. Um, uh, it's called Roman Republics, and it's the implication that the collapse of the Roman Republic didn't wasn't created in sort of overnight, but was actually from these different series of republics that changed over time in their composition. The room is the exact, 100% exactly the same as that, uh, in that... Its original life as the weird libidinal uh, dream of Tommy Wiseau, uh, as and then its other life, probably in some like like some clinical psycho psychoanalysis students like finds it in this weird like uh, like adventure story way. It's buried in some attic, some bootleg of some cousin of Tommy <laughs> Wiseau had it. And then they use it to, uh, essentially there's a hidden Freudian masterpiece written by some grad student who saw the room before all the rest of us did somewhere in the world. (laughs) And we all should be trying to find it right now. Um, And then you have the room of popular culture that Mel was implying that we've all, I'm certain at this point as known weirdos have interacted with in some way, shape or form. I also, I remember the first time I saw the room which was my sophomore year of college. I was uh, in 2008, I was at a, a liberal arts college that was also um, affiliated with uh, a Christian church so they had some rules and stuff but by sophomore year I finally found the art students who smoked pot uh, <laughs> and by then we had already but we had been we watched multiple toxic adventure movies and the holy oh, mountain yeah. and like all the good college weirdo shit that you need to see your sophomore year of college and then at one point they had a bootleg copy of the room and That was the first time i saw it but then after that it just like it uh, like both internally and externally then that spurred on the multiple rooms from my own perspective first of all the room of popular culture that is is a, a space to where you go in the same sort of essence of rocky horror perform sort of this interactive element with a film that everyone is in on the joke. It's kind of like professional wrestling in a way, almost like suspending your disbelief and then interacting in this like Rocky, Rocky. There's more of a correlation between Rocky Horror Picture Show and professional wrestling, I think, than people would think. <laughs> <Yeah>. But uh, <laughs> no, I digress. Um, and then there's my current exploration of The Room, which is that, um, as I alluded to before, the, the Room is the hidden Freudian masterpiece. It's the most Freudian film that's ever existed. Um, it, is, it is the most useful tool for anyone to learn about Lacanian psychoanalysis. It basically describes the stages of development in, in and of itself, as well as is the pure distilled essence of the libidinal fantasies and the uh, desires um, in all way, shape or form the object petite a uh, of tommy wiseau is this movie from the very beginning uh, to the very end it's and i fantastic i just i i've i don't uh, i don't remember pre the room me either uh, no definitely not me either like, what First. did i what ha- what was i like before it
0: <laughs> definitely I I definitely wasn't interesting before I watched The Room that's for sure <laughs> I will say this okay so for the folks who are listening who have no fucking clue what we're talking about The Room is a 2003 masterpiece film written directed and produced by Tommy Wiseau who also stars as the 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 main character Johnny who is a successful banker He is engaged to his fiance Lisa in their nice little San Francisco townhouse and Lisa has become dissatisfied with her long relationship with Johnny.
2: In spite of the fact that Johnny seems to be the most beloved member of his entire community. Exactly. Because everyone knows who he is (laughs) and everyone says, hi, oh, Oh hi, Johnny. Everyone greets everyone else as they would for anybody else. And when Johnny comes up, they go, Oh, hi, Johnny. They recognize him instantly. Exactly. Sometimes they say, You're my favorite customer. Yeah. We I love you. <laughs> you're you my favorite person. We love you, Johnny. Yeah. You're loved and liked, Johnny. Yep. He you, is he's the
0: crux of the friend group too. So he's yeah. lovable, lovable banker um, who is engaged to Lisa. Lisa doesn't want to marry him anymore. And she begins a secret affair with Johnny's best friend, Mark, who is played by Greg Sestero, <laughs> who also wrote the book, The Disaster Artist. So if you've seen the most recent film, The Disaster Artist, which is James Franco's adaptation of the book, then um, that's who that is. And uh so it's essentially this affair, uh this plot is, Extremely difficult to follow when you watch the film, but the plot yeah, is it follows
2: the It follows the machinations in the path of the unconscious. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> that's why let's I mean, get through easy. the plot
0: first. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna pull up a plot description. So we our, our listeners can understand what the fuck we're talking about. So Johnny uh, is engaged to Lisa, Lisa, who is arguably the best actress in the entire film, which is not saying much seduces mark and they start this affair johnny overhears lisa confess her infidelity to her mother claudette and is trying to identify who her lover is the film is so hilarious i'm sorry it's like 20 percent sex like it's just a bunch of sex scenes really
2: uh and, like, well, i do have one weird tracking one...
0: shots and, and uh odd shit like a drug dealer who's
2: i have one theory about the room and it's that every time you watch it you are you at least you would think there's one fewer sex scenes than they're actually every time i watch (laughs) every
0: time there's one
2: more than i thought was going it's like oh yeah i forgot about that one too every time every time that's the only fan theory i have right about the room everything else is academic research
0: right so long story short johnny and johnny discovers who uh lisa is having the affair with it's mark um he has a total emotional breakdown destroys the entire townhouse and then shoots himself and the end of the film is mark lisa and denny who's this sort of like oddball character (laughs) who uh (laughs) Is like I think he represents like the love that people have for Johnny. Like he's like he just relies on Johnny completely. Uh, I don't know. He just kind of is there. Yeah, um, he's
2: a rep- he's a representation of. Uh, Tommy Wiseau's desire to perform and be fatherhood he's his he's his a representation of his desire to perform contemporary masculinities that's why they at one point in the movie they just stand there and have a conversation and toss a football on a roof
0: I know why I are, know
2: why are they on the roof why are they throwing a football for any reason besides just like hello hello a surrogate son. Would you like to perform American masculinity with? Me? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, they might as well have gone up there, and then there's just a car there that they have to fix up together, like on the roof. Yeah. Like that, it would be there's the like same There's like multiple movie. scenes.
0: There's multiple scenes where the men stand around and throw a football between each other. Like any of the men in the friend group, we could have a long conversation about this. I'm having a really hard time explaining this plot because honestly, it is extremely difficult to try and. You sum did a up. pretty good job, I think. In like <laughs> actually, five. Six sentences, but essentially, like this film came out in 2003. It was total fucking flop, total flop. And then cult audiences sort of like found it and created this huge sort of popular culture cult sensation out of it. And that's essentially why it became so popular. And when you see the film in the theaters, um, the the sort of instead of you know acting out scenes like you do in Rocky Horror or doing dances or singing songs you are essentially engaging in an hour and 40 minute long dunk fest on the film. So, and there's like, there's various rituals that you can do. One of, the, one of the most famous ones I think is on set in Lisa and Johnny's living room, there is a table set against the wall that has a bunch of framed pictures on it. One of the framed pictures inexplicably is a fucking silver spoon. <laughs> for, for whatever reason. It's not a picture of Lisa. It's not a picture of Johnny. It's none of that. No family members are on the wall. It's literally just a framed picture of a spoon. So anytime a framed, that that specific shot comes into, into the scene and you see it in the background, you throw fucking plastic spoons at at the screen it's just you're just just highlighting the absurdity of the film like there's these like useless tracking shots in san francisco that are meant to establish where you are right uh which are not necessary for uh, understanding the film at all but it's so hilarious because people i i have a distinct memory of this dude behind me the first time i ever watched this film going where the fuck are we and it's like this huge Mm -hmm. picture of like the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, it's just fucking yeah. hilarious shit. And the whole film is just a giant dunk fest. It's just beautiful. I love it so much. I like being able to sit with strangers and dunk on a, the stupidest film I've ever seen. I love it. It's so great.
1: <laughs> Good it, shit.
2: It's, I mean, and that's, I think that's, I, th- I think that's the best place to begin dissecting the film, which is Part of what makes it so interesting, and honestly, what why it's so ripe for any number of readings, probably a limitless number of readings, is that, and I mean, and I mean this with all with all all due respect to Tommy Wiseau, um, the when I really do mean. That like well of I I and and also not a joke. I mean every single inch of my Freudian reading of this movie. But I also very sincerely mean that like Tommy Wiseau is only capable of being displaying and attempting to like embed Tommy Wiseau's essence within everything that he touches. He only is and of himself. He has this very particular vision of the world to where like the reason why the room is so interesting is because it is so drawn directly from his own vision of how things either should be or desire again is you know sort of, well, the theme it, of my can reading we, it's just feverish and weird it is but can we also
0: can we also take a moment just to talk about tommy Wiseau before we get into the reading of the film Absolutely. ash i'm sure you uh, have something to include here but no one does anyone know where he was born no one knows actually how, where he came from. The Wikipedia article says that he is uh, born Europe citizenship. Yeah, he's ca- he's
2: cagey about it.
0: Yeah, he's <laughs> he has a very mysterious sort of upbringing. I think um, he is claimed.
2: He thinks this is cool. Yeah, and it's not. It's just kind of confusing. But yep. see, it's he's he's got to be Tommy. He,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the the. What I can see here, you know, in various interviews, he has claimed to have lived in France, quote, a long time ago, claimed he grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and described having an entire family in Louisiana, but no one actually knows where he was born or actually the date that he was born.
1: But that's that's because he's a vampire. That's because he's always been here. <laughs> there, is no, there is no beginning for Tommy Wiseau because his beginning has been lost to history i like this. There's, there's a whole cut sequence in the room where we find out that Johnny is actually a vampire and has lived forever and has a magical flying car that flies over San Francisco to prove his vampire powers exist.
0: I mean, it's so mysterious, right? Like, uh, apparently in 2016, in a document, they made a documentary called Room Full of Spoons that I didn't know existed. And I am now going to go watch that. Um, but uh, concluded that he's Polish and that he's originally from Poland. And he confirmed publicly for the first time in 2017 that he's originally from Europe, but that's all we know. We don't really know very much about him, where he grew up, about his origins. Really. We just have essentially conversations that he may or may not have had with other actors or people that know him. So he's this very mysterious kind of figure, cultural icon really who. Came out of nowhere and uh settled in in California and wrote and produced this film. And um it's it's the whole film is just everything about it is just this like really interesting sort of enigma that I I just love and I will always love.
2: And see that to speak, speaking of enigmatic parts about the room and also to synthesize these two to do a dialectics here between uh the points. Uh, just kidding. That's not what dialectics is. I know. I know what dialectics <laughs> is. To all of our viewers, cut that out. Mandatory. Uh, <laughs> um, the flying. I'm get to get back to the flying vampire uh, car stuff. Um, there is, and, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this, Ash. In, in the sort of, fantastic the the sort of fantastic of Tommy Wiseau's oeuvre and in non jokey potentious words sort of the intentions and the you know the the final product of what Tommy Wiseau created i feel as though the 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 fantastic elements that would be drawn from vampire powers flying over san francisco into the strange like johnny centric world that is this film aren't as large of a gap in terms of the way that culture um, sort of stretches our frame of seeing, if you will. Um, and I was wondering, just in general, your take on the fucking vampire shit. And how, <laughs> in my opinion, it's not that different than the rest of the room. It's not, it's not that different. It fits
1: in a way. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that would have like... Massively affected the flow of this film because there's so many lost subplots that kind of just get eaten up yeah. The the one thing that I think it would have seriously changed if we actually would have had the for some reason Johnny is a vampire scene is it would have fundamentally changed the genre of this movie.
2: Yeah.
1: right and and so like, you know, like I mentioned earlier this this was originally pitched as a serious drama semi autobiographical retelling of Tommy Wiseau's life yeah. that failed So they tried dark comedy as a way to reboot it. That I I think misses the mark of what this movie is. And this is an apocalypse film, right? Like this this is a movie about the end of the world and the end of all time, right? Like, but it's the story of a single man's apocalypse, right? Everyone around him is becoming unheimlich. Like his his friends are betrayers. His lovers hate him. This town that ostensibly loves and cherishes every aspect of his existence forgets him in the period of like two days you know like he's got this birthday party where supposedly he's going to be surrounded by all of his like defenders and loved ones and champions and everyone is just like eh yeah you maybe your fiance is cheating on you with some other guy who am i to say anything you know and like this this gives us this really contentious like generic existence like who is john like johnny emerges as a realist like this is this is a cinema verite mad max you know, we don't get the we don't get the leather fetish, we don't get the mm. apocalypse world. We just get like one one guy against everything, but he's in a sea of other Mad Maxes. You know, like this is this is like, you know, Johnny Johnny's like the rest of us, right? He's he's awaiting the trumpet of apocalypse. But there's no meteor, there's no alien invasion. You know, we're not going to get the San Andreas storyline where the rock swoops down in a helicopter and picks him up at the last minute and flies him all to safety. He's like you know, he's like Dr. Morgan, Zach Hobson in the days before Project Flashlight. You know, like, uh, I think uh, Omega Man, too. Like, I'm always thinking about, like, M- Matthias's line at the end of Omega Man, where he's like, one creature caught, caught in a place that cannot stir from the dark, alone, outnumbered hundreds to one, and nothing to live for but his memories. You know, so Johnny Johnny is Omega Man.
2: Johnny is... Johnny is the boy and the dog and his dog is whatever the kid's name is. I always forget the kid's name. Oh, oh, hi doggy.
1: That doggy is literally dog meat.
2: Yeah. Like it is, it's, I think this is really true. And in particular, because of the way that the film Mel for, for all of Mel's, like I have trouble following the plot of this movie. She summed it. She actually summed up the plot really well and ended in remember that ending. Uh, where Tommy Wiseau commits suicide, his character, I'm sorry, Johnny commits suicide. And then he is then almost immediately surrounded by all of the various sort of like part objects of his, like the construction of his ideal world that had, as Ash was described, begun just sort of getting sucked out in like this singular vacuum into nowhere. We don't know where it's going. But in doing so, in a way that does not like. Ex- also, as Ash was saying, like how like. They, like to 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 do a, a funny Gil Scott Heron per, per, uh, paraphrase I just thought of uh, the apocalypse will not be televised, <laughs> um, so so to speak, um, and it, which is also to incorporate that uh, in one of the most important statements of the 20th century: the revolution will not be televised into the broader sort of historicized version of what that means uh which is that like revolutions don't happen overnight apocalypses don't happen happen overnight and if we if we take the construction of this film and draw it to the interior the sort of de- devolution of our own psyche say well you do it continued using a our own sort of con unconscious sort of spilling the, the portions of our unconscious anxieties, which is in the possibility of the absence of our fundamental desires as they start to sweep away from us and we have no means of grabbing them and getting them back because they exist in this plane that is beyond human subjectivity, that language in this real capital R space, that language cannot communicate, this, this interior, the apocalypticism of interiority for lack of a better term, for to give it sort of a structural flavor, um, results in the reconstruction. Uh, it's a very, it's a very sad, very somber ending. And you know, whether the, like I think, no matter whether you're reading it as something that is like a reconstruction of. Uh, Tommy Wiseau's central goals with the movie, which is the affirmation of all of his inner desires, or as a representation of the destruction and the, the dissolution of all of those desires, no matter what, the, the part objects of the, that desire come back to him and reconcile all in front of each other, even in their conflict, they turn on Lisa Uh, mark turns on lisa and calls her a tramp in the same way that in using the exact same word using language to express the same thing and then they have a conflict with the kid and then even when lisa is about to storm off and just to like remove herself from the situation because she is seen as like she is the portion of desire that is longing for to be desired by others, the sort of inverse capturing of desire, the way the sort of estuary and desire between human subjects, uh, she comes regardless, like she sees the kid crying and she starts crying and then she comes back and everyone's okay with it. And they all end with them all there mourning at the loss of the good, the central sort of like, what holds the central fabric of this universe together, which is the character of Johnny. And so, as as this sort of as the world starts to sort of kind of just fall apart really quickly in the film, you see that there are these like there's just this, it's just it's a really good fucking movie. That's the idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's so many readings because as you're sitting there, as you're sitting there talking about it, um, you know, my brain's going, Well, we could also take like a really in depth feminist reading of this film and see how uh essentially like violent misogyny just like starts and ends the film in a lot of ways. And the character of Lisa is treated very harshly all the way across the board, right? Her mother is trying to convince her to stay in a relationship with Johnny because he has a job and he has stability and he buys her things and she owes him that, right? Even though when she's, she's trying to ass- assert her own autonomy as a character in the film, She's constantly being brought back into the relationship. The way that Johnny treats her uh, is often as an object and not necessarily as someone um, that he he really loves. He, he possesses her, right? Um, like even in the end, being called a tramp by Mark, right? She's seen as this sort of like seductive vixen, right? All of the problems, that happened to Johnny and to Mark and breaking up the friend group, she's the focal point there, right? She is the one who starts the shitstorm, and she is treated as such. And even like, even like, I don't even wanna call it a throwaway, but you know, um, her mom as a character is really uh, sort of uh, a caricature of a mother-in-law, right? Um, just the, the test results came in I have she's, breast cancer. You know what I mean? I like, was
2: just about to say, you're not dying. Well, the test results came in and they confirmed it. I have breast cancer. You know, it's
0: just like shit like that, right? She's my so,
2: favorite character in the movie. She's great. She's so good. She's my
0: you know, there's. it's really interesting because, I don't know, we could like go on and on about just um, how various tropes are treated in the film because it feels like Tommy just brought in all of these like central sort of like movie tropes, the drug dealer who wants to get money from Denny, right. Uh, The sort of like disaffected kid who can't go home. Like the, the, the love triangle, the, the sort of weird friendships that they have where their friends are like fucking on their couch. Like what? Like, there's just so weird, weird sort of like dynamics that are happening where all of these things are being brought in together. And it, becomes this film that you could spend hours dissecting and never come to the same sort of conclusion about it
1: yeah we really i think we really need to talk about chris r for a second so so the drug dealer right we have to talk about chris r um single-handedly the only person in this movie who can act which is just baffling to me like no one no one else in this movie can actually be the characters they're trying to be except for chris r uh, played by Dan Janginian, I think I'm saying his last name right. He ran for uh, the House of Representatives in Texas, <laughs> I think uh, three years ago or something like that. It was very fairly recently he ran it, uh, for the House of Representatives in Texas, right? So, like, that in and of itself is like mind bending in, in the full summation of this movie. He but really like- is,
0: like, he's the best character. He really can act, and he's only in the film for what, like, four, less than a minute?
1: Well, he 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 feels like the only character. So the problem with this this movie that makes talking about it strange is that there are no characters in this film besides Chris R. Everyone else in this movie. So like 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 to 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 come back to what Kyle was talking about with like psychoanalysis, like uh, Johnny or perhaps even Tommy Waso is the first living human to be only his Jungian shadow. There's like, that's the sum total of his psychological space is pure shadow, right? He is unaware of the entirety of his existence and it is yeah. consuming him at every turn. And so like, you know, like Lisa is, is like a, just a, it's a straight up projection of his misogyny, his fear of women, you know, like everyone's interactions with Johnny. It's just his insecurity. It's his, it's his, you know, like psycho, psychological need to be loved by everyone and everything. Yes. Cause yes. even, even dogs love him. flowers like whole bouquets of flowers you turn them up and they're perfect and beautiful and everything is good and right except for his ill-fitting suits but chris (laughs) r is like the only person in this movie who has an agency disconnected from johnny he's the only character who actually like has a goal that isn't immediately related to johnny right he's like neo in the matrix you know he woke up (laughs) and he's in a world where everyone is just constantly thinking about this like random vaguely european banker guy and he's like oh wow i can do other things it's like it's (laughs) like uh what's 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 that movie where like the guy is sent to an alternate universe where he's the only person who can lie and he realized that gives him infinite power this is like that but with really poor ambitions (laughs) i feel like i'm sitting on an atomic bomb waiting for it to go off
0: it's so hard to talk about this film you know like
2: it it it, is its cultural context is kind of weird like because it reminds me of what I, the vibe I get the most from it is what is erotic thriller, um, and sort of if we're, if we're trying to, if we're trying to say like, okay, it's like, let's, let's try and, uh, let's try and place some form onto this text. The movie that comes to mind immediately is the Bruce Willis movie color of night, which is actually <laughs> a movie about psychoanalysts. Now that I'm, I'm, rem- I did not remember that part until literally I just said it. they literally, I believe characters are in there are psychoanalysts. Anyways. um. Holy shit, uh, but it has like which where it has this like the the injection of the quote unquote erotic element has the um, ha- as it does with many people uh, when, when you're either trying to sort of embed or not include overtly elements of sexuality and, but but culture or art creeps into some part of your life or whatever. I know it's queer, I know as 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 uh on as this very uh, queer podcast right now probably would understand in my experience that art was helpful for that. Um, because it sort of gives it like makes these like little discursive divots to where sort of the flow of creativity can like find new spots and it, you know, it tells you more about yourself. And the sort of like, you know, you know, you call it in an unconscious in both conscious and unconscious ways. But um, when it comes to the, when it's injected into these Hollywood, like sort of bigger Hollywood films, it gets completely, uh, to use an academic term, bananas, because there's like, there's this injected chaos of like, we need to please a studio, to continue to retain the budget. We need to do a product plug. We need to cast the right people. All We need to reconcile it with our three producers there's or the two people who wrote the screenplay based off of one person's story and then the director and then like the flavor of 1994 cinema or whatever. Like it's a Bruce Willis, Jane March, like erotic thriller. You know what this movie is about already. If you grew <laughs> up in the nineties, you like, you can see it, you can see the cover in your head. You can see the pixelated, like sweaty, sexy faces, or whatever. Like, but what 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 matters here is the way that the room is able to synthesize all of this stuff in through one person, not just because you know, written, directed, starred, etc., with Tommy Wiseau, but because Tommy Wiseau is a very particular kind of person who is incredibly like anxious about the lack of what he sees as fulfilling warmth and love and acceptance and probably some part of his life that is exercising itself in app, like in plain sight in this movie. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's just very, it's just, it's just very interesting. And I think, uh, I think a lot of what was said was spot on.
1: So something that like, so I watched it again this morning and like, the the horrible curse thing that like crept into my brain is like soviet realism and then like late late soviet sci-fi watching this right because i'm thinking like this the, this movie is like the perfect ideological project for like an odds capitalist identity right like johnny johnny is a patriarch he his entire social existence is defined by one scene of consumerism it's him it's him going into a store that's his interaction to the world it's his existence as a banker his his friendship with these characters is like like mel you were talking about earlier like it's a it's a non-friendship they're throwing a ball back and forth which signifies like this classic americana ideal masculinity but it's not like it's not a connection you know there's no depth there it's it's hollow you know so we have like this weird inversion of like Soviet realism, which had like ideological goals and projections to depict like an ideal Soviet reality. And we have in this one like an attempt to depict the extant reality of capitalism, which is like this anechoic chamber filled with noise.
0: I think it's also really interesting too, because, you know, this is sort of post 911 world full of American patriotism and Americana. And everywhere you turn, it's like you're buying flowers and nice lingerie for your fiance. You're throwing a football back and forth. You're having drinks with your, you know, coworker who's telling you about life. You know, <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, freaking wild. Just like everything about it screams just giant American trope in a lot of ways, which is really quite fascinating to me.
2: I don't know. Yeah, it's, pulled, it's pulled from this collective, like the way that I interpret it as someone who was born in the late 80s. Um, the movie Father of the Bride, that's the aesthetic that I imagine in the culture. The cultural imagination of this movie is a very sort of um, bourgeois. 1990s popular romantic comedy film Steve Martin that everyone knows that house that big white house that everyone had in all those movies and everyone had a golden retriever this very like again talk about talk talk about libido in these films like it had this very very sort of like like this sort of combo drive desire to express this like sent this sense of security and upward mobility all of the jobs that the people in these films they were all they were architects, right? Who the fuck is that? I don't know any architects, I'm sorry. Uh, McMansion Hell, uh, one, one, one architect. One architect. <laughs> and Bankers. I don't know them personally. I don't know they, them personally, but yeah. It's like Lisa's
0: a stay at home uh, fiance, stay at home wife, right?
2: Uh, yeah, She's Do you even absent. know
0: like what Mark's job is?
2: Uh, a very important.
0: Very important job.
2: <laughs> who is going to get a promotion soon. Um, but then didn't get the promotion because they they think see and here's the thing about the people that like you bring up a good good point his weird the the sort of absence and space left by the ambiguity of Johnny's job as an important banker that is the most specific that's just about the most specificity I think that we get
0: we don't Um, even really get that he's really a banker really you kind of have to get it
1: I you got to get it said, through
0: context clues, really. Yeah,
1: uh, they they say they say banker, but it's not. So I, I think like one of the things that's going on here is that like you 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 can't talk about work in in the context of an idealized American project. You can only talk yeah. about like work that's that's already been metaphorized into something else, right? You can talk Ambiguated about the work, yeah. masculinity and and virtuosity behind uh, construction, you know, hardy blue collar labor but you can't actually talk about having a job. And in this one, like, what does anybody do? They're all just kind of like decidedly middle class, decidedly set up pretty okay. And that that's feeding into this like, like, okay, like you don't talk about your job when you're with your friends. You don't talk about how much money you're making. We, we get like that over at Line where I think it's Denny who's like, oh, how much did that cost? And then Lisa's like, now we don't talk about the price of material goods. Otherwise you're gonna start talking about like yards of linen, little boy. It's very like Victorian of of them, almost. <laughs> well, that that, that, very... whole, that whole relationship is just like, because because what what is what is the opening of this movie? It's it's Denny who is a college student, but you would probably never pick that up unless you like watched the movie a dozen times. Like he reads yeah. like a high schooler, right? right? He's so childish, fucking and, creepy and the, high schooler. Yeah, and I, the whole opening I like scene to watch is, yeah that whole opening scene is like. Johnny and Lisa are very clearly going to have sex, but then there's this like weird little boy who's just like, I'm gonna watch. I like watching you. I like being yeah. near you and with you. And I can't He'll help but read some weird like, that, that is, I mean like Kyle, you're completely right. This is the most Freudian possible film. <laughs>
2: Cause he's their ch- he's just the little child. But again, he has, as you just as you said, as as you both point out, he re- he reads like not just as a high schooler, but like a young high schooler, mm-hmm. and like he's to he's where they're yeah. they're tossing around the pigskin, and he's like he's he's like a father to him or whatever. But like, and you can have like a paternal relationship with someone who's young and in college, for example, and be however old Tommy Wiseau is between. 2,000 and 25,000 probably, but it does yeah, as, as Ash said, lost to history because he's a vampire. Uh <laughs> like you don't the the coherence is only the, the coherence only congeals around the family unit. Uh even in the weird sort of like cultural spaces of erotic thrillers where usually there aren't kids. The reason why all those erotic thrillers are about powerful, upwardly mobile executives is because those people don't have children. And so, or if they do, they're a point of tension and they're pushed off on the parent that was dumb enough to take the children in the divorce or whatever. Like it's, it's this like purely like cruel, capitalistic take on it. And this is sort of an extension of the, like again, Tommy Wiseau sees himself as the classic, the classic, uh, contemporary neoliberal American father figure mm-hmm. that uh, like has his bank, his good banking job, and is popular in his community where everyone knows his name, and he goes to places regularly to where he can be their favorite customer. And he has this stability and this coherence that only exists within the realm of language like, beyond this, like, it's constructed purely through the, you know, from a linguistic bottom up, like, imagination of how he thinks, like, the world needs to be, including pathologizing it to the point to where he kills himself, as in the film, as a means for demonstrating how people would miss him when he's gone, and how they would be able to overcome some, like, horrific betrayals and immediate conflict intention in order to mourn for the most important and central part of this movie which is the character of johnny the everything except for uh neo stands exactly <laughs> on top of he's only neo he is that is neat he is neo from the fucking matrix that was that was incredible by the way that, that that's perfect but in <laughs> and, and, and and correct chris r as neo is just but anyways uh, like everything else stands on the back of this like very strange Polish man with, you know, I have nothing against the Polish. I am part Polish. But my my goodness, this, this strange Polish man's weird film that like, again, if you have ever been interested in Freud and psychoanalysis or whatever, I'll throw you a syllabus and then just watch read that stuff and then watch this movie. And you will understand it. I know it's hard, but like, oh my God. It's like text this movie is a textbook by the way this is a textbook <laughs> uh it's not a film
0: <laughs> oh i love this shit. this is why we do this shit. this is why we have ash
2: on <laughs>
0: any 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 parting thoughts about specifically the plot because i really wanted to kind of segue into uh, the sort of interactive movie going experience of the room and its sort of place within sort of cold pop culture and uh bring up some bullshit about warner brothers so that maybe we can have a conversation about where that's headed in the future since we have ash on and i'm sure he has some opinions
1: warner brothers i think like so so part of like the uh, absorb because there are so many awful movies made every single year that are that are just as bad as the room you know like this isn't especially terrible but I think I think the magic sauce here that that lets the room like click in, in some part of our collective unconscious is that like it's so painfully honest, you know. Like like so so the plot is it's it's like it's like kaleidoscopic, right? It's like you're staring with like a strobe light two inches from your eyes. It's like the Levitico treatment, you know. And like but it's like 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 this is like try to remember back to like the shittiest year you've ever had. And try to to imagine that entire year condensed down into like a crisp 70 minutes. And that's what happens in the room, right? Like you have like, this relationship falls apart. There's a tragic suicide. You're betrayed by your best friends. You lose your social status. Uh, This little boy you're mentoring becomes, you know, struggles with drug addiction and or becomes a drug dealer and or almost gets murdered by Neo or something. (laughs) Like I don't even know what happened with that. And then like then there's the random therapist friend that's floating in and out. And it like this reads like someone is trying to tell you a story of a really tough year they had, but but they themselves have not yet internalized to those pieces and figured out what's going on. Which is like like this is the lived condition of of the pure lunacy that is under contemporary capitalism, right? It's it's so and and atomized and shuffled around. That, like there's something about watching this movie where it just feels uncomfortably real like it's like it's a staring into in, into a mirror in a mirror that's just too honest it's not blurry enough to let you get away with those crow's feet and you know like those problems that you've got it's it's so fucking clear that we have to just like the laughter at the room is almost like that uncomfortable laughter you've had when you've encountered the real <laughs>
2: Tommy Wiseau is in the mirror stage this is like that's my closing argument Tommy Wiseau has has now determined himself as the potential object of desire for others and he is now moving on to the what where he is trapped is he has never been able to figure out that he is not able to capture the desire uh, of others in the same way that he expects and so and he he didn't he is realizing that he is he's in the he's at the beginning of the oedipal stage where he is realizing (laughs) that he needs to compete with the father for the mother and so that is why in this film this film is his transit okay no no here's the reading and here here's my here's the end of that and then we can talk about the the proletarianization of the cultural commons the the let me do my freud and then we can talk about real shit (laughs) uh the beginning of this, uh, the beginning of this film is representation of the Lacanian mirror stage, which is the point in child development when a child looks in the mirror and recognizes that reflection as themselves. What happens then is that they are no longer seeing themselves as the absolute ideal I. Instead, the ideal I is this other subject, the child in the mirror, who like, oh, look how handsome and cool and cute I am. No wonder mommy loves me. <laughs> then the, what the child does in the edible stage, the child realizes and understands that mommy doesn't like love me as much as I need her to. And that's really fucked up. And I don't like it because mommy also loves daddy. And that's fucked up. I am the center of everything. Like And remember, this is all metaphorical. This is a paternal metaphor and a maternal metaphor. These are not literal. It is represented in the stages of child development, but for adults, it's not the same thing. Tommy Wiseau is trapped in this part to where the, like, the, the idea of capturing the desire of the other is bumping up into the reality of people are never going to see you in the idealized way that you are Like that, the the desire to to become an idealized version of yourself is just a part of living. But the reason why you're anxious about the way that people are accepting you is because they're bumping up into that. And it's just a process of living and learning that other people, you're never going to understand exactly how other people see you. You just have to live your life and accept that there's other things that to do that can like create meaning in our lives, besides just trying to capture these sort of base desires that are really constructed in the social world. And so and then at so basically, the beginning of the movie is the mirror stage where Tommy is looking in the mirror and recognizing himself and how everyone of course loves him. And in the beginning, everyone does his girlfriend, see his girlfriend literally goes from, I, I love him, I don't. I don't know if I love him. I don't love him. I hate him. Those are statements that are said th- <laughs> and plotted throughout the movie. It's amazing. It's an incredible film. But like, <laughs> basic. Basically, it is the the stages of childhood development via Freud and Jacques Lacan are in this movie because he and Tommy Wiseau just was never able to escape the part of the Edipal stage when babies are trying to figure out just like, you know, how do I deal with the fact that mommy doesn't always want to just hang out with me. That sort of a thing. Anyways, that is a, those <laughs> are my final thoughts. Beautiful. On this movie, aren't you glad I was free?
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> getting a Lacanian myself. reading of the <laughs> room. God, I am so glad we're friends. I never would have had this conversation otherwise. It's, Ugh. But yeah, uh, sort of moving on to just, you know, we're already at 52 minutes. It's gonna be a long episode. Um. I really wanted to take a moment to really talk about the cultural phenomenon of the interactive viewing experience in the cinema and what that, it it certainly in my life, that that Rocky Horror, just the concept of midnight films, being able to rewatch old films at 11.50 at night with strangers, right? Um, The whole sort of cultural phenomenon of what that looks like was a big part of my late teens and early 20s in my college experience. Um, it was de- definitely like formative for me um, and <clears throat> how I could sort of conceptualize community and um, really kind of participated in community. And I think the room was very much part of that right? Ash, like uh, there's something about the movie going experience, not the $20 a ticket kind of (laughs) blockbuster movie experience, right? But the single screen, it's fucking one o'clock in the morning, your best friends found the darkest corner in the back to make out in, you know, and you're watching some film that hasn't been in a major 15 screen theater for 15 years or 20 years or 30 or whatever. That experience is a very unique sort of community experience that this year we haven't necessarily at all been able to participate in and in many ways we may not be able to given how things are sort of moving with just the movie business in general and so i i don't know i want to get your take on that like how do you feel about that sort of take about the sort of interactive participation of movie going in this sort of style
1: yeah I think it's like there's like a lot to to go after here, right? Like like the like kind of what's happening right now in Hollywood is like obviously, it's been a year since like you could reliably release anything in theaters. And so now, like like Warner is announcing that it's dumping all of its like big budget super blockbuster movies on streaming services in addition to uh, theater releases. and like this the studios have wanted to kill theater chains for like decades now there's, there has been like wave after wave of efforts to attempt to like get rid of theaters because for them theaters represent an unnecessary overhead. If you don't actually need to like, you know, they're, they're a middleman, you know, you have to give a cut to the theater and then the theater takes some of your profits away for releasing this film. So if they can get rid of that, uh, they'll they'll succeed completely in totalizing their own internal like capitalistic economy. But I think part of the problem is like, uh th- theaters are dying in like two different senses they're dying in the sense that uh you know studios want to kill them off so that they can make all the money themselves and they're dying in the sense that like there are so few like local independent theaters where you can like that are free from this stuff right like disney disney has like it, to to get a major disney release to play in your theater you have to sign on these like really parasitic contracts to keep playing their movie even well after it's not going to be profitable for your theater anymore. And so like the, you know, by and by the only theaters that are surviving are those giant chain theaters where you got to pay $80 for your popcorn and $700 for your ticket. And like the, the experience there is like, it's, it's less going to like the mom and pop diner and it's more going to McDonald's. And so like, this is, yeah, this it's is
0: cheap the, and sleek and yeah. corporate.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's the continuation of our like rentier economy, you know, like we can't, you can't own anything and and that includes like a collective owning of a space right you know there's there's no more drive-ins because fewer people own vehicles fewer people have the time to attend those kind of things movies are way too expensive for that stuff now and that's that's like that's even another layer of this problem right like outside of horror movies which have like always cost next to nothing to make even if they're a major studio release like the cost of movies is like hundreds of millions of dollars now for not just like, it's not just like the major summer blockbuster that's gonna, all the money goes into that and it's, and it's like you're the horse you're betting on. But now it's like every, like all 30 Star Wars movies that come out in a year each cost $300 million. And that, that, like, this is all like forming this giant web that spells the death of like being able to go with people and watch a movie. And I'm like, I mean, like, not even to mention copyright law and like, in short, we need to bring about full communism so I can enjoy movies again. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very unique space, right? Like, you, this, it's probably, you know, it felt, you know, now that I have a little bit more of my own sort of like political analysis under my belts, like re examining that portion of my life when that really wasn't something I thought of, but like, it felt like one of the last true sort of like common spaces, right? Where you can have these instantly sort of amiable and mutual relationships with strangers sitting next to you, right? Where you have these conversations about the film you're watching, you show up early, you, you know, it's one of the theaters that I went to, I think in Denver, I vaguely remember there being intermissions to be able to talk to people in between portions of the film. Like there were these really cool spaces of just kind of misfits, right? Who were awake, at fucking 1230 at night and wanted to watch a movie together. And it was Monty Python. It was, you know, Boogie mm. night, it was whatever the fuck. Right. <laughs> um, and every time you, you would have these sort of great moments to just kind of share space together that you don't get in a corporate theater because you want to make sure that you have the right spot and that you're not, you know, you got to have like your arm rests down, fuck you. I don't want to talk to you. Stop fucking talking behind me. You know, that sort of shit didn't really happen in these midnight theaters that was, you know, and it was a big part of like building relationships when I first went to college, you know, um, because it was so fun for me in high school. And um, I lost my point. What I'm trying to say really is that like, <laughs> I'm reminiscing now because it was just so much fun, you know, and I think the, you know, in, in the context of like this discussion on the room, like it's all part of the same sort of, small universe of being able to build that community and sort of subvert and usurp the alienation that the system puts down upon us you know
1: yeah yeah i think like tragedy
0: that it keeps happening
1: the 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 the, there's like a really potent question that's like undergirding all of this and that's like who owns culture right is it like in order to make even like the most low budget z movie you need at least a dozen people doing different jobs Right, like this is this is an inherently collective form of art, right? Like you can't you can't. I mean, you can make a movie just by yourself, but like that is traditionally not how the format is handled. But like then we have to ask like whose whose is the viewing experience, right? Is this meant to be a, a capitalistic consumeristic enterprise where you you digest your lone piece of cinema, or is this meant to be something that we kind of engage with together that we that we have as part of like a cultural conversation? And, like, it's readily apparent that the studio system wishes this to be nothing more than, like, enjoy the product that you're being given and be silent until the next product delivery session begins.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's a uh, naked consumerism. It's um, mm-hmm. it's not about enjoying the art, which is always meant, in my mind, art is always kind of meant to be a sort of collective experience, no matter the format, right? Could be print, mm-hmm. could be taking a walk through an art gallery, right? It's always something that you could certainly do by yourself, but has always been something that is far more enjoyable and far more impactful if you are uh, engaging with uh, artistic pieces as part of a group. And I think this is definitely part of that, right? Um, So of course, capitalism, which prides itself on (laughs) being a monstrous vehicle machine of alienation and atomization would not want that sort of collective space to continue to exist because that is dangerous. That is you, a threat to capitalism. You have
2: both, You have both head on collided into, I think a really, really good point uh, via the end of uh, Ash's preview point and into what Mel just outlined, which is the newer sort of more contemporary transnational biopolitical form of capitalism that we have to deal with in our contemporary society that both affectively and instrumentally diffuses the sort of mechanisms of control, power, coercion, etc., but as well as just the, the products of the culture industry and of the capitalist economies in this what they call an imperialistically sovereign way. Imperial sovereignty is the word that they use. I believe, I think I got, I think I managed to get all of that correct. Um, it's, they wrote like three books about it. So I'm proud of myself. But there's this eye that like, there's this idea that these sort of concepts of the way that capital works has changed the way that we perceive public and private as ideas of space, as well as in their relationship with ideas of uh, around people and private and states and the notion of the public with which this idea of the multitude, um, in part that and the, the first the first of these ideas in the beginning, this Imperial sovereignty is outlined in a very popular book that they wrote called Empire, sort of the uh, the manifesto of the 1999 WTO protest, for example, um, and then they wrote another book on it called multitude which was the is this um <clears throat> sort of this idea of recategorization outside of these singular conceptualizations and then they have a third book on it called commonwealth which is about sort of reimagining and figuring out how to apply the notion of the commons in our contemporary moment i think the the ends of those of that particular three book series are the most useful of all three the first to understand how neoliberal economics works um and its relationship with power and biopolitics for example if those are any Foucaultian buzzwords anyone has heard before it helps you understand <laughs> that and then Commonwealth in the way that I think we need to at least I don't always agree with Michael Hart and Antonio Negri on everything but what I do agree with them is the the way that they've attempted to reestablish and reimagine our political imagination around new ideas, the commonwealth and the commons, I think being a very helpful and useful one. Um, I take a lot of my takes on this from the scholar Jody Dean. Um, uh, we're all just downstream from the lit crit guy because he finally is the one who got me to read Jody Dean. <laughs> and now I've been passing, I've been handing, I've been passing those ebooks out like it's fucking candy. Um, but it, I think what you've both really just, really hit the nail on the head with is that there, the production of culture is the, even the idea of it, not even like both the process of it in terms of the cost of in capital, uh, the, just the cost in general of distribution and development and creation of something that people would consider a film, but also in the, who makes movies? We don't like when you ask people who makes movies. They'll just be like, "Well, Hollywood makes movies," or you know, the the film industry, or filmmakers, or whatever. And any one of those answers is like, "This isn't the place to the onus on individual people." Um, I completely understand those answers. They're technically correct, but really, people make movies, and really, we make movies, and really, movies are made in a common cultural space most of the time. But now, what we have is a, a very bloated in new and weird culture industry that does a lot of the making and creating in this sort of superstructural way that overshines and uh, casts out other elements uh, of, of culture that are trying to make films. Um, and I got distracted at the end of my sentence because you can see my cat chasing his tail <laughs> on the chair behind
1: just- <laughs> Added cat value. <laughs> yeah, always. no but
0: you make a lot of sense. okay so it, that you know that remind reminds me of something that i was thinking about the other day about what cultural production looks like in an almost thoroughly at this point alienated capitalist society because that's kind of where we're at right now right i mean we're having this conversation over zoom
1: mm-hmm.
0: right uh we are all engaged in projects where we are producing something that we are handling ourselves right it's you know it Some of it can be a team project, but a lot of it is not. Like a lot of my side projects is just like individual production, right? And we have apps like TikTok where individual creators are creating their own work and and very few of them are really collaborating unless they get famous enough to notice each other. You know what I mean? Um, And it's sort of this weird space of cultural production that we're in now where, you know, in the age of streaming and YouTube, um, going to the movies Feels like a waste of time for a lot of people, um, and maybe I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm a millennial, and like we we hung out before smartphones had more than just one app, you know? Um, whoa, whoa, man! <laughs> and I'm like a I got young my first millennial. Phone.
2: Yeah, I got my first phone when I was like seventeen. I got it my- had Snake on
0: it. Yeah, yeah, I had a flip phone until I I got through my first year of college I didn't get a smartphone until 2011 and I didn't know how
1: I to- got a smartphone in 2014 <laughs> I I couldn't text on my first cell phone because texting you had to pay extra for that yeah yeah and I didn't oh yeah we didn't have the money to pay for the texting so I can right. call people on a phone that lived in my pocket
0: yeah <laughs> right so okay so to all of our young listeners are like god they're old as dirt like yeah we just we lived in a we lived in a time where cultural production was different. Like we went to the we, movie- li- we
1: lived in the before times.
0: Yeah, you know? the before times. Yeah, before I, I remember Facebook.
1: what it was like before the internet was a thing. So do I. yeah, I remember my parents saying we are never getting
2: the internet. Yep, I remember mm-hmm. vividly them just being like we're never gonna need that shit. We're never getting it. Stop yep. asking. Yep. I remember, yeah, oh, I remember
1: all those takes where it's like They're oh the internet, that's really like if you do a lot of like <laughs> important business and you need to stay yep. connected all the time, but like, like lawyers get the internet. Right. right there wasn't there wasn't anything on it for your like average person you know like i remember all of that stuff and then i remember when schools started like going online like
0: yeah learning yeah. to type oh, in elementary school yeah i just um back then it was the world wide web
1: yeah. american online
0: yeah oh my yeah. god yeah, AOL. yeah.
1: The, wall, um, the beautiful days of the walled gardens
0: the days before Facebook, when everyone was on AIM Messenger and MSN Messenger and shit. Yeah. Not
2: yeah. to, not to, unfortunately make this the same joke in two different podcasts, but you know when the internet was a disk that you found in like oh the grocery god, store yes.
1: parking lot that was yep. all scuffed up. It was twenty yep. hours free of American online. I miss chaining those things together, just kind of like <laughs> picking them up. Be like, oh sweet, another yeah. twenty hours of internet. Oh my yep. god
0: all right before we get too too deep into that cut i think what what i was trying to you know talk about was that we now live in an age of just the most obscene alienation and atomization and Mm -hmm. you know when i was in high school and in you know middle school we went to the fucking movies every weekend we saw a film you know we parents gave us 10 bucks and told us to go fuck off for a night, you know, like they dropped us off and we met up with all of our friends and we went and watched a film, you know, and that was just like a part of of how we interacted with each other because my parents knew that we would, you know, be totally fucked. We wouldn't be like getting into trouble somewhere. We'd just be fucking around, sneaking into films and stuff and like, whatever, you know. Um, and it's something that continued into college where it's these pi- pivotal moments where, I found community among a bunch of weirdos, much in the same way that I interact with the weirdos on Twitter. It's just we met face to face. You know what I mean? And like, it's difficult to grapple with the fact that this is not something that we can do now. Right. Cause like, Ash, when you, when you like, when we first started talking, we were talking about going to film festivals and like checking out the the Dundee theater because it had just reopened and doing mm-hmm. the whole fucking deal. And then the pandemic fucking smashed us in the face, you know? And now we have we have the potential death of the film industry as we know it. I mean, I my hope, I think, because I'm I'm now getting into some serious cynicism about what the future of this world looks like. Um is that maybe this means that independent single screen theaters might have a comeback because of the death of movie chains. That's what I'm hoping. Is that optimistic? Is that like like extremely optimistic? Cause that would be like the coolest shit for me. I don't know.
2: We have to find a way to, I mean, really. And this is, this is honest to fucking God's truth. Like you have to, We there has to be a critical mass of individual people who, express a desire to establish a community space for this type of a thing. And absolutely something like this can happen. And it can last for a long time and it can have historical significance. I can see the art theater in my city from my fucking window. And it's the (laughs) only part about living off of a, like a six lane road in front of my beautiful view of a Nordstrom, a Sephora and a car dealership that always keeps its lights on at night. And one benefit is that this community space it's right up the. It's right up the road. Um, at one point it was established by a group of people and and given historical relevancy. There's just you know there has to be a desire as well as an environment. The problem is that one the economy of course, but also that there needs to just be a group of people who would say like, hey, we can do this. I think people could do it. It just you know, maybe once we get a little bit of economic recovery and hopefully liberals can maybe do the only thing that they're good for and try and inject a little bit of stimulus into our pockets as well as that of the million millionaires and billionaires so mm-hmm. you
1: know. yeah i think like i think i think part of this is that like capitalism will destroy art because that's what it's really good at doing you know like i mean, like copyright law is the best example of this star wars should have been in the public domain before i was born and as we've already established the three of us are older than dirt <laughs> so it's like we're 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 Facing this uphill battle, we're kind of like attempting to preserve these independent art spaces is It has to be necessarily woven in to other social causes. Otherwise, it's going to be eaten alive, like all the other like, you know, like consumerist movements, you know, like the whole like uh, Green go like the, the first wave of like the go green movement. That that was just completely devoured and now all that's become is some some like fancy quote-unquote liberal cities have bland have banned past plastic grocery bags and like that's that's part of the necessary machinations of this struggle right it's like these independent theaters are fighting a gigantic capitalist machine but they themselves are like woven into the structure of it you know and I think that there's there's so much good cinema right now that's happening outside of the the major studio system that's happening outside of those release cycles, you know, and even that is still kind of beholden to this because that stuff's getting distributed on Amazon, right? That's that stuff is getting like instant upload to video on demand on like Prime or Vimeo or something. And like all of those systems are beholden to like Amazon Web analytics and stuff like that. So like it, it, this thing, this thing is interconnected. It's all deeply woven together. Something, something intersectionality, something something, save cinema. <laughs>
0: Well, and you bring up a good point that like, even in like, to keep this, you know, in a sort of political bent, like activist spaces have movie showings, right? Uh-huh. Being able to, I think that's also a really cool thing about the accessibility of a lot of this cinema is that we can just build a place to build that commons and have that common experience um, that isn't um, necessarily dependent on having a, you know, single screen 500 seat theater to to do so, Right. Um, however, it's just, you know, it's, I think I've been having a lot of conversations, especially I spoke with the folks from inhabit yesterday. We had a lot of conversations about just how much has changed this year and, and how we collectively just really haven't like fully processed the effects, oh, yeah. uh, the potential effects, the, the possibilities of how exactly this has changed all, you know, uh, completely altered this. Right. You know, um, and so, I see that you have to go, Kyle. Um, yeah, I don't want to
2: interrupt. No,
0: no problem. We've been going. talking for for two hours. We could probably end it here really shortly. But well, I think
2: whatever you want to do.
0: Ultimately, what I want to say is that the room is a fucking masterpiece,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I am so glad that you guys got a chance to uh, air out your your very sound theories about an analysis of this film. And I will talk about this film until my dying breath. And I hope (laughs) to God that someday I will be able to watch this film again in theaters and enjoy that experience with you two. Parting thoughts, Ash, Kyle?
2: My my parting thoughts are speaking of movies. I like movies. I've always really liked horror movies in particular. And if you are- someone who listens to this podcast, which means you're probably a dirty commie like the rest of us, and you like things like horror movies or nice boys who are smart and who know books and smart people things, and communism, you should listen to a podcast called Horror Vanguard. Um, I'm a big fan, personally, um, and it is not because of appearing on that podcast, which I have. Um, Speaking of, if you would like to listen to myself, if you would like to listen to Captain Mel, if you would like to listen to Steven, or us, all of us talk about fantastic movies. Um, you Horror can Vanguard. To, you can and should listen to Horror Vanguard. <laughs> Particularly listen to me for two hours talk about the Foucaultian elements of a Lindsay Lohan torture porn movie, um, which is probably, that. probably probably that my 2020 beautiful. highlight. In content creation was the Lindsay Lohan Horror Vanguard episode. It's just like, I'm setting records, baby.
0: Yeah. My my favorite podcast appearance this year was also on Horror Vanguard. I got to do the post-colonial analysis of the mummy.
1: So good. It's this is the fun that we get to have over on Horror Vanguard the podcast.
0: Your podcast rocks. It's one of the first podcasts so I started bad. listening to, just <laughs> on my own. I remember what I remember listening to your episode three. I think what was that Jensen which... Ackles movie.
1: Oh my God, My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, yeah, that, was, yeah. that was our first oh, Valentine's Day. Yeah, that was special. that was that was
0: like in your first five episodes. That was a fantastic, oh, fantastic. Young episode.
1: Jensen Ackles. Wow, that, that sends me Blast all the way back.
0: Glass from the past. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you should listen to Horror Vanguard. You should follow Ash on Ash's Twitter, which is. Ash,
1: uh, oh my, yeah, my Twitter account is at uh, Night Moves with four underscores in between night and moves.
0: Here you go. Um, you can check them out on Patreon. They've got a Patreon and a really cool Discord server. Um, and yeah, your uh, your podcast is on SoundCloud, right?
1: Yep, SoundCloud or wherever else you can find high quality communist horror movie analysis.
0: Yes, very good, Ash. The thank
1: podcast you f- store.
0: Any parting, <laughs> any parting thoughts from you ash before we send you uh we make you walk the plank
1: oh i'm excited to walk the plank i've never done that before uh yeah watch, watch the room and uh lose lose your mind for staring into the void that is contemporary reality and thank the two of you so much for having me on a pirate podcast yeah pirates fun facts so this has been pretty cool
0: yay thanks for coming on and um we gotta do this <laughs> we gotta we gotta have you on uh ppr after dark because we we get a little wild and
1: Ooh, all right i'll a, do it we have
0: a couple of drinks and we just talk about whatever the fuck we want so yeah.
1: and you, you you guys have to come on our show to do like a pirate horror movie
0: oh that would be
1: so fun <laughs> this has to this has to happen now Ugh. <laughs> The research for that is going to be very, very fun. <laughs> Everything is going to be okay.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Protean Pirate Radio. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us tonight. If you love what you're hearing and would like to support us as we navigate the uncharted waters of our dystopian present, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash protean pod. Until next time.
1: You are tearing me apart, Lisa! You are tearing me you're a